UK Motor Talk. Hi everyone, we are UK Motor Talk and we're back. I'm Mike. I'm Graham. Good evening. And I'm Dave. How's everyone doing? Yes, all right. I stopped Jim on a plane, so he's gone. He's in Copenhagen presently. Lucky boy. I know, for, for a work thing. And look at his schedule. They've allowed them seven minutes between each section, which I think is incredibly kind. I think they've probably worked out that the motor industry works on how long does it take to inhale a cigarette and down a can of Red Bull. That's pretty much it. And then they just move on and move on and eventually they'll eat or something. But is that maybe a bit too much of a traditional view of the industry? I, I don't know. I don't know. Traditional view of Jim by the sound of it. <laughs> oh, this history, I think. Um, so something has happened in the last week or so that has tickled my pickle. I'm really excited about this because I like retro things, as, as we all know. I kind of like electric things, as I think we've all discussed. And we got very excited when we saw that there was going to be a new electric Renault 5 because it just looked pretty cool. Alpine have released what they're going to call the A290 or a, I assume it's the A290. Sounds like a road. A290 Beta, which is their own version of the Renault 5 and is what's being called the new Renault 5 Turbo. And it looks epic, doesn't it? It certainly does look something. Very, very good looking. An electric hot hatch with extra set of lights, so it instantly looks very Alpine, and I'm always keen on having extra spot lamps and things on the front of the car anyway, because it looks quite right in a retro sense. And it looks remarkably like the um, the, the Turbo 2s that they used to have, sort of the maxi style with the, the intakes just in front of the rear wheel arches, which I think won't do anything on this, but nevertheless does look really cool. A set of pretty funky 19s, and this one... And let's face it, this is a concept car, has a central driving position, which I think is, is pretty cool as well, with a seat either side for the passengers. So you can relive your, well, so you can, not relive, but so you can live your uh, your McLaren F1 fantasies, I suppose. <laughs> That's a fraction of the price with, yeah. with two very skinny people. Yes. Well, let's face it, it's probably going to be fantasy, the, the interior. But the exterior, we're told, is 85% production ready. So it's going to look quite like this i think they're going to lose the crosses on the headlamps which is a shame because it does look pretty cool and a few other legislative bits but nevertheless if this comes out and it's a sensible price we could see the beginning of proper electric hot hatches rather than really heavy you know suvs that weigh 2.2 tons this thing looks epic it's the first time i've really looked at an electric car and thought god i do want that that's excellent do you remember a few weeks ago we idly mentioned the idea of electric drag racing and mm. and you know electric hot hatches it, it doesn't stretch the imagination too far anything they can get that much torque onto the ground very very quickly that's got to oh, be yeah. a recipe for a hot hatch well i was at a an exhibition today it's like an expo thing and i was chatting to a chap that i know sort of family friend and we were talking about company cars and i'd pitched up in in a Mach-E and he pitched up in a Tesla Model Y and he was saying that his boss had because for company cars electric stuff is ridiculously cheap so where you might be paying 300 quid for a Focus ST you'd be paying 40 quid for something like a Mach-E which is just absolutely insane it's so cheap but you get really democratized performance because his boss he said had added the performance pack or something onto his Tesla 
which gave him the 3.8 seconds 0 to 60 time or whatever. And the same thing with a, you know, with a Mackie GT, you get a, a three and a half second 0 to 62 time. It's just madness. This is the sort of power that still really is sort of hypercar power, isn't it? In, the, in a hatchback. I'm not sure you, you necessarily need that, but what a way to be able to get so much power, just a normal car. So if you could make it a bit lighter, and if you could focus on doing something like drag racing, then yeah, it's going to be really quick. Are we going to, well, I won't be, I won't be around to, but will you be speculating in two decades' time about this golden era of electric hot hatches? Mm. You'd like to hope That's so, an interesting wouldn't you? Question. We need something exciting. I mean, if they're gonna, if this is the future, they, we're going to have to have something that we can get dewy-eyed about. I mean, if they did an electric Uno Turbo, for example, chances are the thing would never actually move, given it was electric. And, you know, Fiat and electrics generally don't go that well together. But I think I would be suckered into it, as anyone who's ever had sort of a Renault 5 GT Turbo is probably looking at the new Renault 5 and thinking, oh, hello, that's that's pulling the strings, isn't it? I mean, nostalgia is a thing of the past, but it's also incredibly a thing of the future. And anyone mm. of our age who's grown up with all the, you know, in my case, a litany of Italian things that fell apart, even so, for all the joking apart and all the sort of, oh, God, I'd never have one. If, if a decent Uno Turbo came up, tomorrow i heard decent uh, one that moved under its own steam literally steam probably i would jump on that thing but the next best thing is probably to have something that looks and feels like one but is electric and there's a good chance it would keep going for a little bit longer again i would be tempted had i the funds available and i can see why these are going to sell as many as they can make basically as soon as they're out of the factory they'll be on people's driveways um no doubt about that they're they're beautiful looking little things the little Renault 5 I absolutely love it I think I just have the Renault 5 if they did a sporty version of that that wasn't the Alpine I think I'd I think I'd settle for that to be honest the Alpine's great but it's possibly a little bit too much really I'm kind of hoping it's going to be a bit like the Yaris GR and and arrive and just be excellent there's a few coming aren't there there's the 500 Arbath electric You've got all the Abarth 500 or however, however they, they, they say it. We've got the Mini Cooper SE coming. The new Mini is going to have a longer range and more power. And I think there's going to be a John Cooper Works version of that. And MG have just unveiled the new Cyberster, which sounds very clumsy to mm. say, but is a, a pretty looking little, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm guessing, yep. proportionally, it looks a bit like an MX-5 size-wise, but with a Jaguar-style nose. And it's, it's, it's a handsome beast. Yep. which they reckon is going to be about 50000 starting price, which on the face of it seems pretty massive. But when you think the, the equivalent cost of a, a high-performance electric anything, they're going to be looking, what, what's, what's a high-performance electric something? I mean, we've said you can get all the, you know, most electric cars are quick and you can get quicker versions of them. But in terms of electric performance cars or electric sports cars, there's not really a, a huge amount of anything at the moment. So apparently MG are targeting the BMW Z4 fair enough it's going to be relatively heavy by all accounts which i'm not quite sure how that's going to work in a small sports car and it's going to be available in rear wheel drive or all-wheel drive with different power outputs i think the rear the all-wheel drive version is 500 and something horsepower so it should be should be pretty rapid that's ridiculous isn't it i mean they're yeah they're talking alpine have uh, talked about the fact that they're going to try and sort of get the batteries as low down as possible to sort of obviously help with the, the center of gravity and the pivoting around itself feeling um but they're also they're talking about um it's going to have multi-link suspension as will the the renault 5 whereas 
as you may or may not be aware, pretty much the majority of anything so far has just got the old torsion beam, easy fits in the back, works around the um, the battery packs and the packaging, whereas Renault are majoring on the fact that this is going to have a pretty sort of slick suspension setup. So I imagine anything they can do there will help offset the weight and make the thing a bit more darty. Again, they're going to sell as many as they can make. Yeah. Well, yeah. given my comments about two decades' time, you'll be seeing them, you know, disappearing out of supermarket car parks in the dead of night uh, <laughs> with brave young men at the wheel <laughs> doing ele- <laughs> an electric handbrake turn. Just as they, as they move away with their... <laughs> and that's going to be pretty much it. Um, I've just looked it up. 309 brake horsepower for the rear-wheel drive version of the, the Cybuster. Twin motor version, 536 brake horsepower. Good. Oh, that's so going to be a handful. You'd <laughs> think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. I think 300 and something odd horsepower, 309 horsepower rear-wheel drive would probably be an absolute hoot. But yeah, 800 kilos. Well. Mm, I guess it depends where they put the weight, doesn't it? Um, Indeed it is. Our experience really with electric stuff is that it's fine through sweeping bends, but it's when you get the things unsettled, they seem to take a little while to stop bouncing about and moving from side to side. It's almost like you've got a tank of water in the boot. And it's and it's sort of sloshing around. It takes a little while to set itself back down again. So interesting to see what comes of that. But you could be right. This could be the dawning of a golden era of performance EV. And I, I like the idea of that very much. And the Mini has a, a Z-axle style rear suspension as well, independent. And that was an excellent thing to drive last year when we were at the SMMT day and took that up around the Alpine circuit. It was Absolutely excellent. Probably one of the best things I drove around there, just with the instant torque and having just the right amount of power. But more on SMMT later. Self-driving buses then. They're on the road now up in in Scotland. And as far as we can tell, no one's died yet. (laughs) Let's just be grateful. As an introduction, it seems to have been very successful. First runs were yesterday. They're running a regular timetable across the Forth Road Bridge, and um, it all seems to be going well. We keep our fingers crossed. I've been sceptical about it in the past, but I wish them well if they can make it work. Mm, for a long, long time, manufacturers seem to be fixated with the idea that cars would be able to drive themselves and everything was moving autonomous. And then it all seems to have gone a bit quiet, and people haven't really been shouting about it or haven't got as far as they wanted to. And Ford released what they call Blue Cruise for the Mackie, which allows you to, uh, to take your hands off the wheel completely. And on certain stretches of motorway in certain bits of the country, where well, I've had all of our motorways, it will effectively drive itself, which is great to a point. Apart from the fact it kind of already does that, as long as you keep two fingers on the wheel or something similar. So I drove all the way back from the airport today down to um, this, this expo in Brighton using whatever, I don't know what it is, some sort of advanced cruise control where it speeds up, slows down, adjusts itself to the speed limit and keeps itself in the centre of the lane. It is very relaxing, if just a bit dull. And to be honest, I can't see the point in having something that will only drive on the motorway if it doesn't change lanes for you and it doesn't navigate you the way the rest of the way to your house. What's the point? Especially if you've got to pay 18 quid a month for it. So you have to keep tapping the wheel, don't you, just to sort of let it know you're there. Is it sort of like a capacitive thing, a bit like a phone, so you complete the circuit? It goes, oh, it's still there, right, I'll carry on. Then. Well, and- with with Blue Cruise, it does it all itself. So I guess if you spend your life hacking up and down motorways, and apparently you can buy it just for a month if you want it, and you know you are going, or you're, you're going on a holiday and you're spending the next week or two driving up to Scotland, and motorways are boring, aren't they? Let's face it then you can just, it will drive itself, but it won't change lanes. So if the person in front of you is in the middle lane doing 50 miles an hour, then you have to navigate your way around them and it does its own thing then. But 
this version works on normal roads that aren't motorways. As long as it can see the white lines, it like a, a big blue bubble appears around the car on the dashboard saying it's got control. And so long as you keep your eyes looking at the road and it'll bong at you and get most upset if you if you don't and keep a hand somehow touching the steering wheel, it's fine. And I've, I've seen some people who have uh, all kinds of devices that, that hang from it. One that looks like some sort of stimulator with a, with a, a thumb and forefinger. I don't know if it, if it vibrates, but it appears to be made of latex anyway, um, bringing new meaning to in-car entertainment and, um, and hanging off the steering wheel so that they, they can dodge the system. But that's free, that bit. It's a time and a place for it, isn't it? That's, that's the thing. I mean, if, if you really are just wanting to sort of head north or say you're heading down to the south of France, as, as anyone who's sort of driven across mm. France and Europe and sort of used the autoroutes, the autostradas, you know how dull that is. The only thing that breaks it up are the payage where you have to stick your ticket in or stick some money in or whatever whatever it is now. It's been a while since I did it. That is an incredibly tedious journey. Whilst it's getting lovely and warmer and warmer and you're heading south and thinking, oh, we're going to have a nice holiday, the getting there is incredibly dull. I could see that being an absolute boon in that respect. Yes, and I th- uh, for me, I think when the, um, the technology is good enough that I can get in the car and go to sleep and I arrive at my destination, <laughs> I'll be very happy. And I'm all for that because... As I say, motorways are dull. Letting someone else drive the motorway is even more dull, probably, even if it does take the stress out of it. Following your your earlier comments, perhaps the ideal would be when you can actually just let the thing drive itself and climb into the back seat with your partner. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I, allegedly, people have done that with some of the Teslas. Um, <laughs> there, was, there was something, actually. You mentioned about driving down the south of France or something. I remember a few years ago, I was driving down to, uh, to Le Mans, and you have the same bit where you have the, the toll booths every so often. And they time you, don't they, between each one to know if you've they been speeding. Do. So I was driving, and you usually get quite a few interesting and leery bits. And all of a sudden, uh, just I think it was three or four Maseratis came absolutely hacking past me at some incredible speed. And then a good few minutes later, we caught them up all parked at the side of the road waiting. And I think they must have worked out how fast they could go. And how long they needed to stop in between each booth in order to make it okay. And as soon as we'd got we've gone past them, and as soon as we'd, we'd sort of carried on the road about another mile or so, they all came flying past again. So they obviously figured out a way to make their own entertainment for these for these booths. And aside from that, yes, the most interesting thing happened was a, a bee came flying in through the window and and got really angry in the car and had to pull over much to everyone else's amusement, being chased around by this bloody bee. But yeah, that they, they, they can be a bit dull between the booths. What would be interesting is whether the car autonomously decides to run them. Uh, theoretically, it should come to a stop, but of course it might just decide, no, I'm not going to do that and carry on going. Who knows? Or if it works out that it's gone above or below the um, the average speed that it needs to have done, whether it suddenly goes mad and slangs on the anchors somewhere in, in lane one, causing a pile-up of about four Maseratis who've got a closing speed of about 200 kilometres an hour on you. I used to have a sat-nav that did that. Back in back in the old days when sat-navs were, were relatively new, so it must have been about 2006, 2007 mm. or something. Yeah, and it used one. to work out, if you'd gone through an average speed zone, what speed you would need to do in order to work out to make the average speed back, which is very clever. Apart from the fact if you didn't update it every single time you went on a journey, it would do that on a stretch of newly open road and it would just go ding, 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 ding. 
ding, ding, every few seconds to remind you yep. that you need to be doing 38 miles an hour instead of 70. That was absolutely <laughs> infuriating. Great for regularity runs, those things, I imagine. Mm. The other thing was they didn't seem to be quite so reliable with positioning. And I, it had a stats on there, so top speed. And I think it worked out the onion had done 206 miles an hour at one point. <laughs> I have no idea how it came Impressive. to that conclusion. Impressive. <laughs> Presumably a piece of road didn't exist that I'd taken and this bypass was enough for it to go, bloody hell, he's shifting, son, and, and, and locking <laughs> the system. That's almost reaching orbital speeds. I would say, yeah. I mean, you could take off quite easily, I should think. Well, in that thing, 120, the front end gets very, very light because I suspect that the silly little spoiler on the boot, which obviously does nothing in standard 1.3, 1.4 form, suddenly has some sort of effect and the air pressure builds up. So the front gets very, very light, the back squats down, and then things like the doors start to open at the top and the wipers start coming off the windscreen because clearly it was never meant to go <laughs> at any kind of pace. And I, I will always remember being on a uh, on a private road in a Sierra Cosworth doing around about 160-odd miles an hour, and exactly private the same road. thing happened. The doors completely, uh, yes, private road, um, completely opened at the top and the wind coming in was absolutely insane. But yeah, there you go. <laughs> Certainly, yeah, certainly you couldn't do that on British roads. And it would be very irresponsible to do that. So don't. Don't do um, that. Or kids. indeed, yes, don't don't go pulling over at the side of French routes and waiting for your time to be equalised before carrying on. There are some cars, though, that are always at the front and some cars that look incredibly fast even when they're standing still. And I think probably as a result of incredible design. Unfortunately, we have lost someone in the course of the last week. Yeah, we've lost uh, Giotto Bizzarini, who's perhaps not as well known as many other designers, but in fact, the roll call of cars that he worked on, it was this incredible alchemy of picking various bits and the best designers he would work with, he would mix in you know, the best chassis engineers. So the cars always handled really well, and they are extremely quick. Powered always by uh, a big American V8, well, bigger, mostly the uh, the 327 Chevy, which is the small block Chevy. But, you know, this is where the 5300 GT came from. But an incredible history. I mean, he he'd left college, went to Alfa Romeo, was poached by Ferrari. Uh, I hadn't realized until I started to read up a little bit on this. Uh, he was involved in the design and engineering of the 250 short wheelbase, classic Ferrari. The 250 mm. GTO, he was the Ooh. development engineer on the 250 GTO. He also uh, was the man to design the V12 for the Lamborghini Miura. He designed the wonderfully called Ferrari bread van. I don't think you've ever seen one. Mm. I've only seen one once. I have. This, this was the extended 250 GTO. Ugly as sin. Supposed to be <laughs> aerodynamically better, but mm. it, it, it never quite worked, but... You know, this, this he was an extraordinary genius who designed all kinds of cars for other people. He designed the ISO Revolta and the Grifo, not so well known, and they, they didn't make very many. And then he was a partner, and there was a, a falling out. And uh, he went off and set up Bizzarini and took most of the designs with him, but then had to buy most of the parts from the remnants of the ISO company. So... He never made, I think, as a Bizzarina, they never made more than about 200 cars, but they are fabulous cars. The CV he's got is just one of the most amazing. Worked with all the great designers, was a consultant for many years, 
was designing Japanese motorbikes and just all kinds of things, project cars for uh, U.S. car companies, some extraordinary work, and a rarity these days. I can't think of many modern engineers who have that combination of eye and technical skills and, and development skills, because he was a pretty mean development driver as well. He he did most of the development driving on the 250 GTO, so, you know, he, he knew what he was doing. Called Murray, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe Newey, but I can't think of many others that, that have that that flair for design and the mm. engineering now to make it all work. Great pity that, you know, the company only lasted into the early 70s, and I think there's only a couple of hundred ever made. But if you go to the revival meeting, there is always a Bizzarini on the front row of the GT race. If it's not on pole, it's on the front row. They're, they're just incredibly fast. And the reason for choosing the, the, the Chevy Corvette engine, the 327, was the fact that it was really, really cheap to buy, really cheap to tune, and very, very powerful lump. Mm. Great cars. Other end of the scale then, Dave, we were chatting off air about the fact summer's here and cars that we can enjoy the summer in, I suppose, really. And you had, a, I think, a relatively great shout. Yeah, well, a friend of mine's got an Audi TT, one of the original sort of Bauhaus styly rounded lovely looking things which were derided at the time as hairdressers cars but i imagine there weren't very many hairdressers that could afford them at the time they'd have been more in their nx5s or probably mgfs at the time but the audi tt mm. has now become is so ubiquitous i mean lord knows how many there were around and still are it got me thinking oh i could have a look i mean the one he's got is a 3.2 v6 so it's one of the later ones with the dsg mm. box and the you know the quattro and all that sort of thing but if you go back to the originals and and i think it'd probably have to be a, a 225 1.8 you can pick up one of the coupes i'm just looking on auto trader here you can have it's in an interesting shade of metallic aubergine with 143,000 miles on it 1290 pounds i mean even if the thing imploded you know even if, yeah cheap. it is mm. it's ridiculous i mean it's proven mechanicals it's it's a golf ish underneath isn't it it's that sort of era mm. it's an audi a3 stroke s3 it's got a haldex that you know there's how many haldex are around well there's many tts as there are haldex around and plus any other car that's got so got I me mean, my car's got a haldex in it so you know they're they're easily fixed if the four-wheel drive does decide to go AWOL, yeah, which is always the worry for people. As anyone who's seen that episode of um, Wheeler Dealers from about 10 years ago, you can repair the gearbox if you lose gears one and two with a 50 pence part, albeit you'll have to strip the car down and you'll need an Ed China and a ramp. But, you know, it does show that... They pay for you... labour, do they? <laughs> no. Labour, what's, what's that? Hold out your hand. But... An Audi TT for 1,300 quid. I didn't think that was too bad. That's the coupe, admittedly. I think the um, the convertibles, if we're thinking, say, summer motoring, probably another couple of grand on top of that. But, you know, I had a Fiat Barchetta, and I absolutely adored that thing. I loved Lovely it. Lovely car. As soon as, yeah, I mean, it was great. And underneath that Lovely was car. just a, a Fiat Punto. It was exotic. It was left-hand drive. It looked like nothing else. It wasn't an MX-5, which was always the attraction. Um, mm. Possibly, you know, it didn't handle as nicely, and it wasn't as pure rear-wheel drive. It was front-wheel drive. 
but I absolutely loved it. And it was around this time, you know, springtime, where you could start putting the top down without having to sort of put every bit of thermal underwear on that you needed and a hat and all that to go out and drive it with the roof down. There was something very special, wasn't there? As anyone like yourself might, it will know who's had a, a convertible recently. That's yeah. sort of the smell of spring when you're out and about. It's mm. um, It's sort of... Flowers opening, the smell of grass, not that sort of grass, which is the smell <laughs> of grass we get these days, but, you know, the mown grass, should we say. Yeah. And horse poo around here. But, you know, all nice things. When you're out and about and you're out in the world and you feel connected to it, putting the top down, very special. And unless you buy a diesel one, and someone at work has gone, a diesel SLK. I can't, I can't see really? how diesel and convertible really works. Yeah, that seems well, like a, a bit of a, a bizarre choice. But you're absolutely right. Even if it's a cheap pile of toot to an extent, you still feel like a, a million dollars when you can drop the roof. Back in my student days, and this goes to show quite how cheap they were, I always had a string of XR3 convertibles. My other half used to drive the decent car, which is a little Fiesta, relatively new Fiesta, every day. And I used to drive this, this old, well, the first of all one was an absolute death trap, beaten black XR3 every day. And then this sort of turquoise coloured one, which followed, which was an excellent car. You had a power roof, which someone had overrode. And the first one, in fact, had a manual roof. So if you were driving along at speed, you could just undo the catches and you'd just go and fly backwards. And uh, and you'd assume, you'd hope you hadn't smashed the glass on the way. But, but yeah, they were great things. And it, it got me thinking, what would I buy now if I wanted a cheap convertible and having a bit of a flick through the classified? And I think probably one of the cheapest cars you can buy at the moment which I think maybe not the most critically acclaimed, perhaps, but still quite a handsome car, is a Z3. You'd probably have to buy one with the wrong engine in it. So you can buy a 1.9, and they do a few different versions of the gearbox. Some are, are worse than others. You can, I think, fit entire continents in between each of the ratios. But I do, I think they, for what they are, and again, they some of those are 1,500 quid, a couple of thousand mm. pounds. It's probably the, one of the cheapest James Bond cars, in inverted commas, you could buy. Yeah, uh, if you, if using that bag. term loosely. Yeah, inverted commas, use it very loosely. Bewley do a James Bond event. You can turn up in any James Bond car. So two CV, I suppose. Although I always quite fancy the 750 IL. But anyway, story for another yeah. time, I'm sure. Cool, cool car, that really cool car. But Z3, if you wanted something cheap and convertible, and I think has aged relatively well, and even an early Z4 is probably not a lot more. And I think because of the early ones are relatively ugly, you could get away with it being a blokey convertible, perhaps. Who knows? If you're worried about that kind of thing, I personally I don't really care what anyone else thinks. Um, <laughs> so I think I would, if I had my my fifteen hundred quid or two grand, say budget, I think I'd probably go out and take a good look at a Z3. Or if I was feeling very brave, maybe an MGF. Just just for giggles. I actually saw an MGF the other day. It's the first one I've seen for a while. I thought they'd all fall into pieces, but there you go. Um, that one survived. My brother's I, got one, and he's very happy with it. He's um, he's in very good petal. I always thought the interiors were a bit let down, but I quite like them. And I remember I worked very briefly as an apprentice mechanic with my cousin, and he had one where, would you believe the head gasket had gone? Um, no so way. we decided, yeah, would you believe it? Um, so we decided to swap the engine out, or he decided to swap the engine out, and said, right, everyone says you've got to take these out the bottom, so we're going to take it out the top just to prove a point with a scaffold tube, just to show that it could be done on your driveway. And it was. It was an absolute mission, and I remember just the sheer pain of that thing on my uh, on my shoulders, lifting it out through the top. But I do remember being underneath it, and going, "Why is there a towing eye facing the wrong way underneath the car? I don't get that." And I was looking at it, and I, I worked out eventually that the the rear subframe, I think, is from a Metro underneath the engine. They've just borrowed the bits and bolted that underneath, so it would support everything. But there you go. 
although they had a bit of a reputation, largely due to the head gaskets and probably due to a bit of rust, I think they're actually all right. I think, again, if you want a, a cheap, small convertible, and they are still relatively cheap, even for an okay one, you can't go too far wrong, can you? No, and they are maintainable. There's um because obviously the the original ones before they became a TF had the the hydro gas suspension, which gives them a very supple ride, and the handling mm. is very good for something that's actually got quite a good ride. And uh, he actually had the the people that bought all the um all the kit, all the refurbishment and the pumping up stuff and everything. I think they're based somewhere in Norfolk. I could be wrong, but they come out to you if you need your uh, your spheres reinflating, as it were. They'll come out and do it. And um, he sent me some photos of it. It's amazing. They'll they'll come out and your car's like he said. It handles like a new car. It's totally different. And the fact that you can do that and people are still keeping them going. I mean, that's classic cars all over, isn't it? It's it's lovely that mm. someone's able and willing to do that. And apparently, it didn't cost a stupid amount of money either. Well, it's a perfect antidote to an expensive SUV. I think mm. something that's big and heavy, something that's that's relatively small and light and petrol. And so cheap. We've we've mentioned before, and we won't go into huge amount of detail about it now, but buying a used car at the moment is relatively risky because if you spend less than 10 grand, you could be buying a shed, but you could guarantee that if something goes wrong, it's going to cost you several thousands to put it right. But you're kind of committed to it at that point because you can't just throw it away. But if you buy something that's less than two grand, it becomes almost disposable. Something really big happens. You're like, well, that's a a bugger because I've just lost two grand, but I've not sort of committed to spending five, six grand on a gearbox or something if it's, you know, automatic gearbox goes down. And used cars are just very expensive still at the moment, but there you go. That said, new cars are very expensive, and maybe this is one for you to answer next time. And I'd like you listening now, if you've got a suggestion for this, to tweet us, write in, whatever you want to do, we're at UK Motor Talk everywhere. If you could only have one car, and it has to be a brand new car, so it has to do everything that you need it to do, and it has to be something that you want, not just something you buy because it's a car. So a car that does everything, if you're into doing track, it needs to be able to do that. If you've got kids and you need to ferry them around, it needs to be able to do that too. So this is, this is a relatively big ask. And I thought this was a really big budget, but I don't actually think it is. 40 grand. You've got £40,000. That's a lot of money in my book, but not when you consider that's how much something like a, a Focus ST Auto is these days just over 40 grand you've got forty pounds you've got to go out and buy a brand spanking new car that does everything you want it to do so it's got to be your sporty one it's got to be your whatever it's everything and i don't think there's actually that much choice of a dual car that you really want to own i think we could be back into uh our conversation from a few weeks ago about Chinese cars. Because Maybe. I, I think there are going to be a number of offerings there which are going to be very affordable and of a good enough quality that they'll, they'll catch on in a big way. Well, unless you can think of something offhand, maybe come back to me next time we all meet. I'll be interested to hear what it is that you come up with. But yeah, it has to be brand spanking new and 40 grand or below. Moving on then, did anyone see the extreme E in the quarry in Scotland? Saw the mm. highlights. I think it's a it's a former open cast mind, isn't it, in keeping with their um saving the planet ethos. They're sort of showing how awful it is before um it gets converted into a hydroelectric 
power thing, which is wonderful. It did look quite exciting, and there were lots and lots of people crashing into each other. And the main takeaway that I got from it was choose your windscreen wiper motor supplier more carefully next time, because pretty much everyone was driving around not able to see where the hell they were going because the wipers either failed or were unable to clear the severe amounts of gunk that were coating the uh, the screens of all the various electric things that were crashing into each other as a result. Electric bumper cars. Literally. Minus the bumper cars, as I, as I say to recall. Well, there we are. Bumper cars are, are dodgems are, are electric as well, so they're the right answer all the way along. <laughs> it, reminds yeah. me of, it reminds me a bit of when you had the, um, the Tamiya cars, you know, with the polycarbonate shells. And you end up bashing them into each other and get that same sort of uh, carnage. I guess the only difference between the Dodgems and modern electric cars, you don't have a bloke suddenly jump on the back demanding money. (laughs) Well, until the FIA cottoned onto it. (laughs) It's quite good to know that the place they were sort of hurtling around is going to be turned into a hydroelectric power station, you know, a pumped storage place, which Scotland obviously knows a little bit about. We, we have a few in this country, and we're obviously having to wean ourselves off the, the dinosaur juice and the, and the, the coal and the coke and, and all, all this sort of stuff. So seeing this place have one last sort of bite of the cherry where they could whiz around it before it all gets sort of subsumed underwater was, was quite good. But my God, the conditions were... Pretty uh, pretty dire, as I've alluded to, with the wiper failure thing. I mean, people were sort of bashing into each other, all sorts. It reminded me, as I think we said off air a little bit earlier, it reminded me if you were of a certain age, you will have had Corgi Slam Bam Sam, which were two uh, remote-controlled cars which had bits you clipped on. They looked very mm. similar to Volkswagen Beetles of the time, and you basically drove them into each other until the bits fell off and the car that had the most bits still on it won. There were a couple of incidents like that that I saw, and there was another one where there was some quite spectacular sort of pirouetting as as people hit bumps and flew off into the air. How they were able to see which way they were meant to be going most of the time was was quite something. But then, you know, these people are cut from a different cloth. They're uh, they're a breed apart. Mm, definitely. Of the races that I've watched, they either seem to be beset by appalling weather conditions and, and as you say, can't see through the windscreen, or they can't see through the windscreen dust and that there doesn't seem to be anything in between those two things they're either incredibly dusty places or incredibly muddy places but i do admire what they're trying to achieve i think i'd rather know my electric car was being powered by something uh, green and efficient rather than the irony of having it still powered by oil coal or something deeply unpleasant like that it, it does rather sort of miss the point somewhat as far as i'm concerned there's a huge wind farm that uh, I can I can see from just down the road from my house, which is something like a third or two thirds of the size of the Isle of Wight now. It's absolutely massive. So I know that it, it's, it's improving all the time. And as we can harness things like wind and waves and everything else, then, then why not? Absolutely, why not? It makes, it makes complete sense. And so we're told the amount of renewable energy will be enough to marry and, and match up with the, the rise in electric use as a result of having to plug stuff in. But I, I do know that I would like to, I'd love to have a go in one. I think it would be hilarious to be able to have that much talk mm. across any surface. And we've spoken before, and I'm sure we will again, about the how, how good electric cars can potentially be off-road because you have a huge amount of talk you can creep there's no you don't have to worry about clutch effectively you can just sit there and you could have you could go as slow as you like you can really really creep with an electric motor or if you've got that much power you can go flying across the top of it like skimming a stone i, I would love to have a go at that 
And I, I guess not extreme e-cards, but uh, we're going to get the opportunity to, to go out and test a, a number of other bits and pieces, including, I'm pleased to say, by the looks of it, some uh, some BYD cars at the forthcoming SMMT test day. Yeah, looking forward to that. Certainly the BYD will be our first collective experience of, of those mm. cars. Uh, it's interesting to see where the world is going, um, because it certainly is. And we are going to see, as we said recently, a lot of Chinese cars coming our way over the next two, three years. BYD seem to be about the earliest into the market. Mm, definitely one to watch, undoubtedly. And of course, there'll be a number of the legacy manufacturers there as well. So they have just released the manufacturer list, but haven't given us the full list of cars yet. So more on that the next time we speak. And on that note, I guess it's time for us to say goodbye. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you again. Thank you for listening. And we look forward to seeing you next time. So from me, Mike, goodbye. From me, Graham, goodbye. Take good care. And from me, Dave, goodbye. See you next time. UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.